Father, we again look to you tonight and we recognize with this book in particular, we need your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who is able to open our eyes and teach us and, um, and that your word is called the sword of the spirit. And we do ask you to give us insight tonight. Give us understanding, O Lord. Help us not to just know these things, but that they would impact how we live our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a, a, a summary of where we were last week. Every week I'll be trying to give somewhat of a summary because it's important for you to understand where in the story we are. And so I just want you to get, again, a, a, a whole picture of what's going to happen and my understanding of the timeline. And so I'm of the perspective that we are currently in what is called the church age, and it may be reflected by the churches in, in the start of the book of Revelation. Some have suggested, and we'll probably talk about this next week, that uh, the churches in Revelation might actually re represent periods of time and different churches throughout the ages. Uh, what I know for sure is the last church, the church of Laodicea, is the one that describes the church in the world today. But in either case, we're in what I'm, I would call the, the church age. I believe that the next event that's going to take place in terms of prophecy is that there's going to be a seven-year agreement that's going to be signed by a world ruler who we'll be talking about tonight. He's called the Antichrist, the Beast. He goes by different names. But it's a seven-year agreement that's going to be made with Israel. And this, to me, is, is going to be a key event in this timeline the signing of that agreement. Now, many Christians believe that we'll be gone before that happens, and that is certainly our hope. But I'm gonna make a case for the possibility that we're actually gonna be here for some of the difficulties that are going to be coming, and you'll see why I've arrived at that conclusion. But for the time being tonight, our general timeline, my understanding is as we're in the church age right now, a seven-year agreement is going to be made with a world ruler, between a world ruler and Israel, and the world will celebrate because it'll look like it's the first time that there's real peace in Israel. I mean, they're going to be having parties and everything else. It's going to be a tremendous celebration. But in the middle of the seven-year agreement, the Antichrist is going to break the agreement with Israel. And he's going to desecrate whatever they're using as a temple at the time. And, um, and a great persecution is going to break out. Now... The position I'm going to take in terms of this rapture event, and again, I'll talk more about this, is that it happens in that second three-and-a-half-year period, and you'll, again, I'm going to explain why I think that that's the case. But at some point, the rapture is going to happen, and then the day of the Lord or the wrath of the Lamb is the next event where the judgment of Christ is going to come upon the world, and you're going to see some crazy things happening. I mean, Jesus described the, the, this by saying that after this great persecution that's gonna take place in that three and a half year period, he said the sun is gonna cease shining and the stars are gonna fall. The judgment of God is gonna begin on the world. That is gonna end at the seven year period with what's called uh, the Battle of Armageddon. The kings of the earth are gonna battle against Jesus and they are going to lose and Jesus is going to set up a kingdom on this earth. And the kingdom is going to be a millennial kingdom, which stands for a thousand years. He's going to reign for a thousand years. I really believe, by the way, that the idea of this is that we've had 6,000 years since Adam and Eve, 6,000 years to get it wrong. And then Jesus is going to come in that 7,000th year and get it right. He's going to show how it is supposed to be done. At the end of the millennial kingdom, there's going to be one final battle between Satan and, and the people of this world and Jesus. They'll all be defeated, and then we come to Judgment Day. And at the end of that thousand-year period, uh, those who will be ending up with Christ will be with him forever. Those that are going to be separated from God for all eternity will be separated from him forever. So this is the basic timeline. Church age, a seven-year period of time that's kicked off by a seven-year agreement. In the middle, it's broken. It's called the mid-trib place there. Intense persecution will take place. It'll culminate with a battle with Jesus. And uh, he will win. He'll set up a, a real physical millennial kingdom on this earth. I believe we will be 
serving with him in that millennial kingdom, and I'll talk about that in a minute because there's kind of an interesting um, dimension to our serving with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And, and then judgment day for the unrighteous, for those who don't know God, and then we will spend an eternity with our God. And I wanna say in heaven, but it's not quite accurate. So we will talk about that in a minute too. Now, let me show how this lines up with the book of Revelation. If you'll turn in your books to the Revelation timeline, which is on page 17. This is my understanding of how Revelation plays out according to this timeline. So you see Revelation 1 through 3, and that's called the church age. Revelation 4 and 5 is actually a pause that takes place in heaven. And sometimes I'll put 1 through 5 just in the church age. I mean, you could just lump all of that together. Then beginning in chapter 6, we read about this tribulation period. Uh, Revelation 6 covers both the tribulation and the great tribulation. That's how these seven years are divided. The first half is called the tribulation by most. The second half is called the great tribulation because of the persecution that takes place. Chapter 6 describes all of that. Then chapters 8 through 10 deal with the day of the Lord and the wrath of the Lamb. It's, called the, it's the same thing, the same event where, where Christ is going to come back and judge the world. Now... You'll notice on your timeline there that this rapture event, which I'm going to talk about also tonight, either happens at the beginning of this tribulation period or it happens sometime in that three and a half year period. And Revelation chapter 7 talks about that. And this, again, is part of the reason that I believe the timing of the rapture is a little bit later because it comes after these seals of judgment. And then comes this rapture event described in Revelation chapter 7. Then the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. Uh, the rapture, by the way, uh, two things happen during that period of time in Revelation 7. One is that Christians, I think, are raptured. But the second thing that happens is that 144,000 Jewish people are sealed or protected by God. They are going to form the basis of this millennial kingdom. Then when you get through Revelation chapter 11 there, it's the thousand year reign of Christ is just referred to and then it goes to eternity. Now, if you were here last week, I mentioned the fact that I'm, I believe that Revelation is, is divided in this way and this was the thing that kind of opened it up in my understanding. It's divided in this way. Revelation chapters one through 11 tell the whole story. In some ways you could kind of end it at Revelation chapter 11. 12 through the end of the book then starts the story in the middle of the tribulation and goes to the end. And so there's an overlapping that takes place between the two. And I'll demonstrate this in a minute as well. Now at this point I wanted to make just a short uh, detour about this um, eternity part you know, we're told that when you die, you go to heaven, and, and in a sense, that's what happens when a person dies, that, you know, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and I think we go up to heaven to be with God, but our eternity is not in the clouds. And I think people have this idea that we're going to spend a whole eternity with harps, We've got each of us our own little cloud that we're going to sit on, and I've had people tell me before, that just sounds so boring. You know, I just want to play some harp on some cloud up in the skies. No, our eternity is on the new earth. And so we read toward the end of the story that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And you say, well, what's the new earth going to be like? I think it's going to be like this earth, only better. It'll be new and improved. It will not be scarred by sin. Like, I don't expect to see any spiders there. You know, stuff like that. It's going to be, I mean, if you love what you see here and all the good, you realize that this is going to be a world without any, anything bad. There'll be no death. You won't have the, even the animals eating each other, as is true in our world today. It, it's going to be a beautiful and a wonderful place. And so it's not as, 
nebulous, I think, as people think. We're gonna be spending an eternity with Christ, I think, on, on the new earth. Now, if you go to page 13, I wanna show you an alignment that takes place in the book of Revelation. It's a general uh, alignment that'll help you understand how I'm approaching the book. Uh, so I have on the left here, you've got uh, the church age, Revelation 1 through 5. And then you've got Revelation 6. You, are you all on, do you see where Revelation 6 is there underneath the main line in, in the middle of the tribulation, but it includes the whole thing. Revelation 6 is the whole thing. Then I've got this rapture event underneath, and below you see Revelation 7. Now what I want you to note is that below Revelation 6, I've got Revelation 12 and 13, and this is what I told you, the second half of the book starts there. And so you've got one through five, the church age, you've got the tribulation period, and then it goes to chapter 11 and finishes the story, but then 12 and 13, begin to describe in greater detail what it's gonna be like beginning in the middle of the tribulation period. And then you can see how I align then Revelation 7 after that, which is, I think, the rapture and the sealing of the 144,000, and that corresponds with Revelation 14. And so Revelation 6 goes with Revelation 12, Revelation 7 goes with Revelation 14. You can see how you can begin to draw some conclusions about how to approach this book so that it would make sense. Then, chapters eight through 10 deal with the wrath of God or the, the day of the Lord, this time of judgment, but so do chapters 15 through 18. And so I have both of them listed there. The thousand-year reign of Christ is alluded to in chapter 11, Revelation 11, but it's spelled out in chapters 19 and 20, and then we've got eternity that's Revelation 21 and 22. So does that make sense? You could see, uh, I view it kind of a little bit as a, like a, a bullseye where you're getting a closer picture of what's happening. The big circle is one through 11, but then it goes to a smaller circle and explains what happens the beginning of the tribulation period until the end, and then the last two chapters are eternity that are touched on in the last two chapters of the Bible. Now, one of the reasons that a lot of Christians believe that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation starts is that there is no reference to church after chapter three. You know, one through three talks about the churches and we recognize this as the church age and then after that, there's no, there's no mention of the church. And so some have concluded because there's no mention of the church, it must mean that we're gone. Um, I think that's an argument from silence. Uh, I'm of the opinion that the reason you don't read about the church after this is that it is the start of the age of the Jews. You know, Paul talked about this, how uh, Gentiles or non-Jews were grafted into this tree called Judaism in AD 70, the, the period of the Gentiles, uh, which is what we're in today. The world, it, it, you know, a lot of the prophecies, a lot of things are related to us and the church. This is the church age, the time of the Gentiles. But we know that there are a lot of prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, that have to be fulfilled, and we recognize that God is gonna start fulfilling those, and it happens right after chapter five of Revelation and chapter six. God begins to turn his attention to the Jewish nation and what's gonna happen to the Jewish nation. Now, I think we're still part of the story. But let me talk about this rapture for a moment. Um, People make the comment that the rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. If you, um, if you Google or do a search, some kind of electronic search in your Bible for the word rapture, you won't find it. And so people have, uh, people have come up to me before and said, what's this thing about the secret rapture? I don't know, what, what is the rapture? Where does that come from? Well, the reason we don't see it in our Bible is that it's, uh, it's actually a Latin word, and it means to be caught up. Um, the word actually was found in the Latin version of the Bible, but since you don't read Latin, you didn't know that. Uh, but it just has this idea of being caught up. And so we believe that before the ultimate judgment that comes on the world, 
Christians are gonna be removed just like Noah was put in the ark and then the, the judgment came on the world. The same thing's gonna happen to us. We are not gonna go through God's wrath. We have not been destined for wrath, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Where do we read about this rapture? Well, let's look at a few places here. One of them is 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. For we say this to you, and by the way, I, uh, I mentioned earlier that I would encourage you to bring your Bible to this event. Uh, normally, we just put the, the references up there, but some of you may want to put notes or take notes in your actual Bible when we get to chapter one here in a minute when I begin uh, spelling it out a little bit. First Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still alive will be, and here's the word, caught up together. Rapio, the Latin word for being caught up. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul was comforting the Thessalonians who were enduring a lot of persecution. In fact, some had probably been put to death for their faith. And he was encouraging them to say this, that when Jesus comes back, that group... Christians who have already died are gonna go up first and meet Christ. They're the ones that are gonna get their new bodies first. And then we who are alive, when Jesus comes back and remain, we will be then caught up and we will be changed as well at that time and we'll be with Jesus. Now I think that being with Jesus in the clouds is gonna be a temporary thing because we're gonna come back with him in Revelation 19, I think. I think we're part of his army in Revelation chapter 19. But anyway, we go up in the clouds here. Now, in a sense, Jesus paved the way for this. And something I mentioned when I came back from Israel is that when you, when you read certain things in the Bible, you should be thinking in your mind, where else have I seen something like this? You know, where has something like this occurred before? And when we talk about this rapture event being caught up, well, where else did something like that happen before? Well, it happened with Jesus, didn't it? In Acts 1, 9 through 11, we find after Jesus rose again from the dead and he'd given his disciples their final orders, then it says, after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, not another one, this one, who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. And so, well, this is what happened to Jesus. In a sense, he was raptured. He, he shot up into the heavens. And while the disciples were watching this, an angel, some angels appeared and said, why are you looking up in heaven? He's coming back. But what we read about in First Thessalonians is that we will join him when that happens, when he appears at the last trumpet. By the way, I believe that the rapture event corresponds with the Jewish holiday called the Feast of Trumpets. It's the one feast that still needs to be fulfilled in the prophetic timeline from a Jewish perspective on the Feast of Trumpets. And so when the trumpet is blown, we'll be called up into heaven, caught up. Now, this is the same event, I believe, that Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52. He says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which means to die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. It's the exact same event. You realize, okay, they're gonna be raised incorruptible, they'll get their glorified body, and so will we. 
Now, I mentioned earlier, kind of a, I think is an interesting dynamic about the timing of all this as I've thought through what this might look like. When he comes back, we're gonna get our glorified body and our new bodies are gonna be very similar to what his body was when he rose again from the dead. He was, he's called the first fruits, the first one who broke into with the new body and, and, and so I think we're gonna have the same type of body and so you remember how Jesus, uh, he, he could, he was material, I mean, he had flesh and blood. He had said, touch me to Thomas, you know. I, I mean, he had a glorified body, but there was a physical component to the body. At the same time, he could kind of appear in a room and he could disappear. And, and it was mostly a spiritual body. Now, I don't understand how that works. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spells it out. He says, he, he likens it to like a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. It's hard for us to understand it, but you got this thing, this caterpillar, it looks nothing like a butterfly, but it changes. A metamorphosis takes place and suddenly it flies. And that's how this new body is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Something brand new, something new. Well, what I wanna note about this is that I think we're coming back with Jesus to reign in the millennial kingdom. We're reigning with Christ. There are a lot of verses that talk about that. And when we get to that chapter, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. We're gonna reign with Christ, but realize that the people that are in Jesus' kingdom, the 144,000 Jews, plus anyone else that did not die during this wrath event, uh, they've got flesh and blood like you and me. They're gonna be like we are now, but we will be like the angels to them, I think. That's the thing that's kind of different, I think. You know how we recognize that there are angelic beings that we can't see. They're messengers of God. They're carrying out his word and his will in this world. Well, we're gonna now be spiritual beings as well, not just flesh and blood, spiritual beings. And I believe a lot of the parables that Jesus told have to do with the fact that those who are faithful in this life will be given greater opportunities in that kingdom specifically. And so like one of the parables, he said, because you were faithful with these, this wealth over here, or your money here, I'm gonna let you rule over five cities. And so I, I get this sense that when we uh, are in the millennial kingdom, you and I, believers in Christ, if we put our trust in him, we're gonna have this new body, we're gonna be serving God, helping him administrate this new kingdom. We're part of it and we're ruling with Christ but we'll be different than they are. Now, the idea of this rapture event, though, let's go back to that. The idea of this rapture event um, is not just in the New Testament, it also shows up in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12, one and two, or two and three. Daniel 12, two and three. Daniel was writing in that chapter about the end times. It's very clear, he's talking about the end of the age. And we read this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, and some to shame and eternal contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He's describing this event when, when this individual that is called in Daniel, the son of man, appears, and, and, he, and when he appears in the heavens here, then these events are gonna take place. The dead are gonna rise first, the rest of us will join him, and those who, it says here, led many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. I don't know what that looks like either, but it sounds like something I'd prefer. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that I find the rapture in Revelation chapter seven. So I'm really, I'm taking a little detour here to just explain this rapture event because people are either weirded out by it or they don't know what it is. I think we need to understand just a little bit about this event. But the first time we read about it is Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. Or, uh, 9 and, 10. and I think that this event, again, uh, comes at the right time in the book of Revelation, and in chapter 14 it does as well. If you have a pre-trib view of the rapture, in other words, Christ is gonna come before this tribulation period begins, then it's very difficult to even understand what's happening in Revelation 7. There's, there's, I haven't found a good answer from a pre-trib position, but if you have a pre-wrath position, if you have the perspective we're gonna go through some of this stuff, you realize that chapter seven comes after chapter six. 
And you read about, read about these seals which represent God's judgment. When I say seals, by the way, we're not talking about the animals. Um, Revelation is like unfolding like a book in biblical times was a scroll and they would seal it. And in the book of Revelation, we read this story about how one by one these seals are released and whatever the truth is in that seal is gonna be unfolded. Well, the seals relate to the hard time during the tribulation period. And then all of a sudden you get this rapture event. Also in chapter seven, you read about the 144,000. So let's read verses nine and 10 of Revelation chapter seven. And again, tell me if this doesn't at least look like a rapture event. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. He says after these events, after so many of these seals, it's not all of them, all but the last one, all of a sudden this event happens in heaven, a vast multitude of people shows up in heaven from every tribe, tongue, nation. It really refers to every dialect. There'll be somebody from Boston, yep. You know, a dialect is more specific than just a language. And there are gonna be people from literally every tongue and tribe and nation. But all of a sudden, they appear up in the heavens. And John even asks, who are these people? And the response is, these are ones who came out of the tribulation. And so to me, it points to that timing right there. And I think that's the rapture. Now, when I was in... Um, High school, I had a dream that the rapture took place. And um, it, was, it was really a fascinating dream. What happened in my dream is that I was writing a story about the rapture. So it was a dream about writing a story about the rapture. I was a high school student, and I had in my dream the story with me plus my textbooks. And it was right there, and, and, and that was really the whole dream except the rapture happened immediately. What is that? Somebody's um, alarm? <laughs> it stopped. Good. I thought it might be the rapture, but it didn't sound like a trumpet to me. <laughs> the rapture happened. I shot up into heaven. From the perspective of all the other students, they saw me just disappear. They didn't know what happened to me. I was gone, but my books dropped. And on top of my books was the manuscript. And as I was going up, I remember thinking, oh boy, they, they all wondered what happened, what happened? And I, I was trying to get their attention saying, it's there, the answer's right there. But the students were just walking by. They weren't curious enough to know what it was all about. After I had that dream, I decided to write a real story about the rapture. And, um, and so I wrote this story and I asked my dad if I could print it uh, using the church mimeograph machine. If you know what a mimeograph machine is, some of you don't know, but that's old technology. <laughs> Those are dinosaur days. But I wanted to make a little newsletter and write stories for it. And the first one was gonna be about uh, this rapture event. And um, I had a girl that lived in the neighborhood that I knew like to write, and so I said, will you help me write the story? Well, she read what I wrote. I mean, I, I had laid out the plot. She was gonna help me with the grammar and stuff like that. She said, what is the rapture? I don't know what the rapture is. And so um, we began to talk about the rapture and the return of Christ and all these things. And then I got onto the subject of the gospel. And right then and there, she prayed to receive Christ. I've said before that I feel like uh, this is something that I think just gets people's attention to point them to the fact that one day it's not gonna be like this anymore. She ended up getting a job working at a Sunday school company that made or printed Sunday school materials for churches all over the world. Uh, and she actually had me write one of the stories for that. Um, so it's very encouraging, but this, uh, I think there's something about these end times and this rapture and whatever that I think gets people, uh, people's attention. It's a motive for evangelism. Now I'd like you to turn in your uh, books to page 11. I wanna look at one last chart that just shows a summary of the different millennial positions. 
pre-millennial rapture positions. Again, some of this is a summary, a lot of it is. Millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ. Again, some want to make that a symbolic thing, but I believe it's a real millennial kingdom where, where Christ is going to reign. Uh, the pre-trib has the rapture starting seven years or occurring seven years before the millennium starts. So it's, it's pre-tribulation, pre-millennial position. And so a lot of Christians, that's their perspective. That's what I was raised. A pre-trib, pre-mill is how they used to say it. And so it's pre-millennial. Christ is coming back before the millennium and the rapture takes place before the millennium. So it's pre-trib, uh, pre-rapture or the trib takes place, place before the, the, um, the tribulation period. Mid-trib has it coming in the middle. I find the least biblical evidence for a mid-trib position. I just don't, I, I don't find evidence for that, although I could see why logically someone might say when the temperature's gonna be turned up in the second half of the tribulation, we should be gone. I could see why logically someone might say that, but there's no biblical basis that I know of. Post-tribulation, some think we're gonna go through it all. And then it's got this rapture event and the second coming happening immediately. And so what happens with the post-trib is that we go up and we're raptured with Christ and then all of us come right back down to reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. The pre-wrath position, Marvin Rosenthal wrote a book called The Pre-wrath Rapture of the Church. He made a strong case for the fact that we may have to go through some of this tribulation. Now, one of the arguments related to the pre-wrath position or the tribulation is that um, the reason you end up with a pre-trib position is that expositors or Bible scholars believe that tribulation, when you read about tribulation in, in terms of the end times, and you read about the, the day of the Lord or the wrath of the Lamb, when you read those things, they're the same event. And there's no doubt that if the tribulation equals the wrath of God, then we all would need to be pre-trib because Paul said we are not destined for wrath and so we're gonna escape it. But that's an assumption that's made that doesn't seem to bear out from my thinking because I think there's a huge difference between the tribulation period and the wrath of God. The tribulation period, Jesus described as wars and rumors of wars and false prophets and pestilence and earthquakes and difficult times. And then the second half is this great persecution and everything else. These are all things that are gonna happen to a world that's wearing out. But when you get to the wrath of God, it's like a switch goes off. You know, suddenly the stars are falling from the sky. The sun is not shining. It's dark for a third of the day, pitch dark for a third of the day during this time. It's getting people's attention. I'm coming back. Jesus is saying, humble your hearts, get right with me. That's the wrath of God, that part of it, where he begins to judge the world and you read about weird things that are gonna happen, like these locusts are gonna come up from the earth and sting people and stuff, which I'll talk about that, Lord, when we get there. Actually, that's part two of the course, but maybe I'll talk about it before that. Anyway, if you view the tribulation as something different from the day of the Lord or the wrath, then, then a pre-wrath position makes sense. We will go through tribulation. Of course, Jesus even said that in this world, you will have tribulation. He wasn't talking about the end times, of course. But in this world, we will have tribulation, but we, we are not destined for wrath. None of us will, will experience God's wrath because our wrath was poured out on Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago. Now, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter one, and I'm gonna actually do a verse-by-verse -verse thing at this point. Also, I wanna mention, I meant to mention this up front, but I was too busy selling bunkers. <laughs> Um, that after last week, I realized I just gave so much information, it's just a speck too much, and I'd be better to make a speck more time for questions if people have it. So I wanna go 45 minutes tonight, 45-ish, and then open up for questions so that there's a little bit more time for that because sometimes I'll skip something that was very important, I've, I forgot about it. 
But I'm gonna go uh, verse by verse then and give us uh, my, my take on how we would interpret, uh, interpret then Revelation chapter one. It begins the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. Let me stop. I mentioned last week that the word revelation means an unfolding. It's an unfolding of events. It's the revelation of Jesus. And it says God gave it to him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. Now, we have trouble with that word slaves because we look at it through the, the history of, of America, but it, it's in the Bible, Paul even began some of his letters. He said, I'm a bond save of Christ, a willing servant of Jesus Christ. He died for me and I live for him. And so this is a letter written to those that consider themselves as belonging to Christ. Now, I want you to note that it said here, show his slaves what must take place quickly what must quickly take place. And I mentioned last week that I think people get a little disturbed by this because it was written 2,000 years ago. It's like not very quick. But the word doesn't mean fast or soon. I'm sorry, it doesn't mean soon. It means actually more like fast. It means in rapid succession. And so the spirit of this is when the time of the Gentiles is done, when it is time, and by the way, a lot of people believe that the time of the Gentiles ended in 1948 when Israel became a nation. When things start, it's gonna unfold rapidly. That's what it's really talking about here in verse one. It goes on to say, he sent it and signified it, which means through symbols, and so we recognize that Revelation is a symbolic book. He sent it and signified it through simple uh, symbols through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ and all he saw. The one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed, because the time is near. Now, once again, you get to this and you say, wait a minute, the time is near, but that was written 2,000 years ago. It doesn't look like it's very near. But the word time here is the Greek word kairos. It's, it's not physical time. It's referring to an epic period of time. And so it's describing the fact, again, that this, there's going to be this epic period of time that's going to start. Things are going to unfold rapidly when it begins. Let's continue in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming from the seven spirits before his throne. Let me stop for a moment. Okay, so John is the author we believe he wrote the gospel, plus the three other books of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's writing to seven specific churches, but they're for all of us. And we'll see how far we get tonight as we look at what those churches are. But there are seven literal, real churches that existed in, in what is now modern-day Turkey, or that area. That's who he's writing to. And it says it's from the one who is, who was, and who is coming, a reference, I think, to Jesus, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Um, a better translation of that is probably a sevenfold spirit. It's most likely a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so you immediately see that this is a letter that comes from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father gave it to his Son. He is the one who's coming, the one who was and is and is to come. And there also is this seven fold spirit before the throne. Now some think it's just the seven angels that are carrying out his will or some other things there, but I think it's again the Holy Spirit. Verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, before, I'm sorry, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to our God and Father, the glory and dominion are his forever and ever. Let me make this point about uh, verse six here. It says, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. I love the fact that before we get into the scary stuff, there's this reminder. 
Because sometimes people, when you talk about revelation, you know, uh, they just get kind of a little scared by it, you know? It's, it's, it's a terrifying thought and the judgment of God. And I don't believe that the book was intended to be scary for us. And so he starts this book, but he acknowledges this fact that he, he loves us. This is the one who loves us. And so the one that's laying all this out loves us deeply, and we've just got to keep that in mind. And also, he set us free from our sins by his blood. And, and again, that's important too because you realize, okay, we're not going to be part of the wrath of God, and we're not going to spend an eternity in separation from him. These are things, by the way, he's revealing to us because he loves us so much and he wants us to know what's going to happen. Continuing in verse seven, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This um, in my Bible is bold. And whenever something is bold in my Bible, it means it comes from somewhere else. It's a quotation. This would be another rapture reference that I could have used earlier. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. I think it's the moment the trumpet is sounded. Jesus is going to appear somehow supernaturally. Everybody's going to see it, even those who crucified him. And they're going to mourn over him. That comes out of Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Someone asked last week, well, the Jew Jewish nation, the 144,000, they're not, they're not believers in Christ, and so I don't know how they're going to be in this millennial kingdom with Jesus. Well, I think this is their conversion moment. They're going to see him, and they're going to realize, what have we done? We crucified the Messiah, and they're going to get it. They're going to get it. And I think there's going to be a mass revival. I think the, basically the 144,000 are going to become believers. They're going to become the Jewish church of that age. Continues, this is certain, amen. The word amen, by the way, means it's true. It's kind of like an exclamation point. Yes, it's true. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is coming. By the way, earlier I referred to this phrase and mentioned it was Jesus. Actually, it was God the Father up earlier as well as here. It says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. Now, he says I'm the Alpha and Omega. Some of you know that those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And, and many times in the Bible, this, there's a a technique, I think it's called mirrorism, where you use an expression that includes the two ends of something with the implication it includes everything in between. And so when he says, I'm alpha and omega, he's not saying, well, I'm just the first letter of the alphabet, I'm the end. He's, I'm, the, I'm all of it. He's over all of it. Verse nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony of, about Jesus. Now, I mentioned last week that I, he was exiled uh, to Patmos because tradition has it they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil and it didn't take. They couldn't kill the guy, so they sent him off to Patmos where he penned these things. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Most likely it was Sunday, first day of the week, it's called the Lord's Day because that was the day that Jesus rose again from the dead and that is the hallmark of our faith, the resurrection of Christ. So he's there on the Lord's Day and I he heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me when I turned I saw, and here's where things start getting strange. I saw seven gold stands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp 
double-edged sword came from his mouth. His face was shining like the sun at midday. Again, God told John, I'm gonna reveal these things to you through symbols. And so what does he see? He sees seven uh, stands, uh, lampstands there. And then he sees standing among them, he sees this person, but this person is dressed with a long robe with a sash on it. And then you begin to get the description of it, these, these amazing eyes. His hair is white like wool. His eyes are like a, a flame. His feet are bronze. His voice is like cascading waters, and he's holding in his hand seven stars, and there's a sharp sword in his mouth, and his face is shining like the sun at midday, at noon. So that's when he turns around, he sees standing there. Now you say, what on earth is that describing? Well, the good news is, he explains it in this chapter. This part of it is explained. He says, again, going back to verse 12, let me start back in verse 12, I turned to see those whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. Verse 20 indicates the lampstands are the churches. They represent the seven churches that he's writing to. And if you think about it, and this will help you remember even the imagery, but a lampstand makes sense for what a church is because a church... A church um, is holding up a lamp, a light for the world. We're the light of the world. And so that's what we do as a church. We're, we're um, putting out the light of Christ for the world. And so we've got, it's like this church is, I think, a lampstand. And Christ himself and the light of the world is the thing that we're promoting there. It describes, it says in verse 13, someone like a son of man. If you're taking notes in your Bible or somewhere else, write Daniel 7 and verse 13. This comes directly out of the book of Daniel. And I told you that the three main areas you need to look for understanding Revelation are Daniel 2 and 7, Matthew 24 and 25. Those two plus Revelation finish the story. A son of man, it's a reference to the fact he looked just like a man. Just looked like a man. Dressed in a long robe, there's some discussion whether this is the robe of a high priest. The long robe is what high priests would wear. But some have suggested that the high priest, though, he wore a, a, a breastplate, but he didn't wear a sash. A sash is something that's worn by a judge. And so most likely, this is how he is presenting himself in this, this story as, as the judge. And of course, he's standing among the seven churches. So the first thing that's gonna happen is he's gonna begin judging the seven churches. I have this against you. You're doing this well, you're doing this wrong. And I think Christ is gonna do that someday. Now, when it says his head and hair were like white wool in verse 14, white as snow, that's the same description found in Daniel 7, 9, only there it's a reference to God Almighty. And so you understand he's presenting himself as God. And it comes from Daniel, and it's, he's, this is all deliberate. To get us, he's deliberately setting the context. He talked about the Son of Man. It was Jesus' favorite way to describe himself, but it's, it's out of Daniel. Amazing scene in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And then we read about this here, this description of this uh, being, in, in, or the Almighty in the book of Daniel, and he... He looks just like this or similar to this. His eyes are like a fiery flame. His feet are like fine bronze. Bronze is the metal of judgment in the Bible. It's associated with the sacrificial system, but it was, it was the metal of judgment. It says he has seven stars in his hand. You say, what are the stars? Well, verse 20 answers, they're angels. So he's seven angels in his hand. And we, we'll get to that. But it's most likely, by the way, the, the angels... Uh, over the seven churches, but it could be something else. The word angel, it just means sent one, and some have suggested that what Jesus is actually holding in his hand are the, the, the pastors of those seven churches. That's what he's actually holding in his hand. We don't know for sure about that. He has a sharp double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. That should bring to your mind Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's, it's the word of God. He's getting ready. And it's, of course, it's, it's coming out in, in judgment. And then it says his face was shining like the sun at midday. 
our mind should go to Matthew 17, 2, the event called the Transfiguration, where John was on this mountain, and Jesus appeared in his glorified form. No doubt in my mind, when he saw Jesus, he realized, that's Jesus. I saw this played out on, on the mountain over there. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Again, it's just so encouraging because right at the point I'd said I'm scared to death. Don't be afraid. I, I do not think we need to fear this. Different responses to the book of Revelation. It could be, we could be afraid of it, uh, we, you know, terrified by it, but I think I'm kind of excited about it, although I don't want to be there when it happens in a sense, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's, I, it could be exciting, you know? Don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now, this is Jesus this time, and it corresponds with what was said earlier about God the Father, I'm Alpha and Omega. Now he says, I'm the first and the last. And I am alive, I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. It's not hell. It's a temporary place of the dead. We'll talk about that in weeks ahead, Lord willing. And um, in fact, at the end of the book of Revelation, Hades is dumped into hell. Those who don't know God are, are dumped into hell, but this is Hades. But he has the keys to death. This is why he can give eternal life to those who put their faith in him. He's got the keys. He's the master. Verse 19, therefore write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this, 20, the secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now see, angels there again, it means messengers. And so it, it, I think it is angels, but many feel like it's the, the messengers, the servants, the pastors in those churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right. So, I'd like to open it up for questions. Oh, you know, I was gonna grab two people to be runners here, because I got two mics. Who'd be willing to do this? Because I think it's important to get some in the back uh, as well. So if you, have, um, if you have questions here, we're gonna take several questions uh, related to what we've talked about tonight. Or you might wanna, it might have spurred a question that comes later. Thank you. I meant to do that ahead of time. So, and if there aren't questions, that's fine too. I'm hoping the Lord comes back first and then I don't have to answer your questions. No, so any, uh, any questions? Okay, I see a hand like two-thirds of the way back. Oh, right here. Okay, there you go. Uh, just a question that would occur to me is how did, uh, uh, how were the seven churches, is there any information as to how the seven churches were selected of all the churches that were available for this particular uh, event? Um, that's next week. Oh. <laughs> but um, there is a correlation between where he is and where those churches are. There's a correlation there. Okay. In uh, one seven. Yeah. You were talking about that as being the rapture. Um, that to me looks like, isn't that what a pre-trib person would say is the day of the Lord, God coming oh. at the end of that and not, not the rapture? Because the rapture... It's not going to be Did seen I say one seven was the rapture? Did I say that, or was it? I I think chapter seven is the first real occasion of the rapture. Okay. So that that's actually yeah, it's actually seven one would be more. Or the, the, chapter seven is the rapture. I think this is the day or the um, the coming of Christ. Okay. Here's something about the coming of Christ, though, that you need to understand. Um, we think of coming like somebody shows up at your house. But when we're talking about the coming of the Lord, the word is used in the sense of an occasion. And so you might say people are coming over for Thanksgiving, and so it's not just an arrival point. It in involves a time frame many times, and so this is what coming is. The coming of the Lord includes this rapture event plus his return to earth to rule. Both of those are wrapped up in the coming of the Lord. So... But as a follow-up, when we, when we look at the First Thessalonians passage and the Corinthians passage about the rapture, yeah. that's not going to be an, this is a question, that's not going to be an event that's, you do think that's an event that the whole world will see? 
or, or just, just for believers and, and the rest of the world will be kind of clueless on it? I don't think they'll know what happened. But we'll be gone. And so, yeah, and you ought to watch the, yeah, the movies, A Thief in the Night, all those 70s movies are just great because <laughs> I think the clothes get left behind even. It's really quite humorous. <laughs> But I don't think they'll, I think they're gonna, they're not gonna know what happened and I bet you anything that it'll be floated around, well, this is that rapture thing and everyone just laugh. It's will be inconceivable um, to them, so. Okay, other questions? Oh, here's one here. Oh, oh, but yeah, back there actually, I, I, that was the first hand I saw where uh, Roger is, so. You said yeah. uh, Hades yeah. is a place where it's like a holding tank that ever, then it gets dumped into hell. Is that yeah. also a place where you get maybe another shot? Or I do not believe so. Just, that's just a holding tank. No, we get a sense of what Hades is like from Luke 17, where there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus, and you realize it, it, it corresponds with the Old Testament concept of Sheol, but it's just the place of the dead, but you realize that there was a, a section of this that was for the unrighteous, and then there was a section that was for the righteous, which was where Abraham was and Lazarus. And there was a big gulf between them, so you couldn't go back and forth between the two. You were stuck in your spots. And then when you get to Revelation 20, or 19, I think it's 19, Hades, it says, is dumped into, it is 20, I guess, gets dumped into hell. Uh, no, I don't think there's another chance, although it'd be nice if there were. I mean, maybe there's something we don't understand. So, okay, yeah. Um, would you give the scripture for where you say that Paul says we aren't destined for the wrath? Yeah. Oh, oh, will I give you that reference? <laughs> I thought you said you gave the reference for and um, where we won't have to suffer wrath for God has not destined us to wrath and that is found in, well, I'm in the wrong book. It's in First Thessalonians, I believe. It will come, uh, okay, it's, uh, it's 1 Thessalonians 5, and I'm getting close. Okay, it's verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to verse 1, you realize, or verse 1 and 2, it's talking about the day of the Lord and judgment. And so I equate the wrath of the Lamb with the day of the Lord, which is referenced a lot in the Old Testament as well. So, all right, over here, yeah, maybe I should go like one, two, one, two, okay. Uh, yes, I believe that um, you had mentioned in the rapture, the 144,000 Jewish people would be saved at that time. They'll be sealed, not okay. saved. Okay. They will be used then for the great revival for just Jewish people? No, um, Jesus' kingdom, when he reigns for a millennium, is gonna be composed of mostly Jews. The 144,000 are marked by God and protected by God. They're saved in that sense through this horrible time so that when Jesus appears, they will join him in the millennial kingdom where he will rule. Well, now, that, will that be the only amount of Jewish people that will be saved? I, don't, I think there'll be more. Okay. Uh, I think there will be more. There are some interesting di dynamics about that, uh, the millennial kingdom related to even who's here, because there seem to be some Old Testament passages that indicate there'll be some other kings around, like Psalm 2. Psalm 2, I think, it relates to the millennial kingdom, and Jewish people today believe it relates to the Messiah ruling, and yet it describes the kings of the earth bowing before Jesus, and so they'll be alive. There'll be some that will be alive. Not everyone will die in the battle of Armageddon. So, okay, yeah. I have so many questions, but let me pick one. Okay, <laughs> Make them easy. So, uh, <laughs> um, so the Christians, there will be no wrath for them. Now, once the rapture happens and we're taken up with Jesus, yeah, um, and you know people are marked with the beast, there will be some, won't there, that will turn to Christ at this point because you know we're leaving the Bible behind. Somebody might actually get it. 
Um, I don't think there'll be any. Uh, and the reason I say that is because in order to buy or sell, you're going to have to get the mark of the beast. And if anyone gets the mark of the beast, it's a one-way ticket to hell, it says in Revelation. Everybody, because they're aligning with the anti-Christ. And you don't think... So those ones, if they get the mark of the beast, there's no repentance available for them. Understand, by the way, that God's gonna do a lot of things to get people's attention. He's gonna humble us. The things he's doing initially are to get us to turn to God. And, he's going to be try and then he's going to send even two, two witnesses, two prophets in the middle of this tribulation to preach for almost three years. And, and he wants everyone to know. It's hard it's for everyone to know, but there comes a point in which everyone's locked in. And I think believers will see very clearly if we're here, or any believers that are here, because I do think during the tribulation you can put your faith in Christ during that period of time. But, but then the rapture, and I think that's it, because the, the people that were believers went. And then the Jews, the 144,000, will believe when Jesus appears at the end of the seven-year period, I believe. That's when that's going to happen, so. Okay, yeah? Okay, so I just want to make sure we're all tracking oh, yeah. with you because... Okay. Um, it sounds like you believe, most likely, it's the pre-wrath. And people are saying, um, what I've heard in the last couple questions, okay, but we're going to be spared the wrath but we're not in that mindset with the pre-wrath belief. We're not gonna be spared the tribulation. That's so that sounds pretty that terrible. Would be, yeah, well. I just wanna be sure we're all in the this The tribulation, uh, the first half is not that much tribulation. It's not that bad. The first three and a half years is not real bad. Mm -hmm. In the middle of that, a persecution is gonna break out. The anti, and this is what's gonna make it mostly bad. And he's gonna go after the Jews. This is what Jesus was talking about. When you hear of this person over in Israel, this abomination that causes desolation of what he's called, when you hear that he's there, you go. You take off because the persecution's gonna begin. And then in Revelation you read, after the persecution of the Jews, it spreads to the rest of God's children. Well, who's that? Well, it might be us. I don't know, but um, that's a persecution takes place. And I think, by the way, there are passages about preparing. If a, if a pre-wrath is right, you, will see, you would see the signing of the, the seven-year agreement. You would you'd know what was gonna happen in three and a half years, and, and you'd be preparing. When I see a seven-year agreement with Israel and I see mass worldwide celebrations taking place, and the person who signs the agreement is a, a very charismatic, powerful individual who's also kind of blasphemous. When all of those things line up, uh, then I think we would want to start thinking in terms of what do we need to do to, to weather this thing. So, what? Oh yeah, by the bunker. <laughs> okay, why don't we just do two more questions? There's one over here. I mean, I think we go for a while. Yeah, go ahead. All right, I guess we can't just let the 144,000 go. Uh, so my question is, there are a lot of Jewish people who are Christians. Oh, yeah. And so uh, I guess my question is, is it possible that this 144,000 are people who are already believers? I think it's not impossible, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. Uh, I think they're going to be raptured. I think the, the Jews... You see, when it was all about the Jewish nation, there were some Gentiles that got brought in and they converted to Judaism. Remember, I mean, it, you know, the Jews were God's chosen people, but some Gentiles found their way in the assembly and they converted to Judaism and they became believers in the true God and now they were Jews. But after 70 AD, I think judgment came on the Jewish nation. Now it's the time of the Gentiles. But Jews are finding Christ as well. But in order to become a Christian, you've got to become a Christian. And so I think you will be part of uh, the group that uh, is raptured when that takes place. And there's a specific 144,000 that were told to flee. They already live in Israel. They're, I mean, it's a lot of people. So it suggests to me these weren't all believers. 
They're going to be in, a, in Petra, hiding in Petra, protected by God until Jesus is ready. So one, one more there. Okay. Tim, before the, uh, are you hearing me? Okay. Yep, yep. Uh, before the seven-year tribulation, uh, the Jewish temple will have to be built for the third time. Is that correct? Uh, I'm of the opinion that the Jewish temple does not have to be rebuilt at the signing of this agreement, but by the three-and-a-half-year point, it has to be there. There's going to be a historical repeat of events that took place millennia ago where a king went into, a Gentile king went into Israel. He did exactly the same thing we're talking about. He was an ally of the Jews. He broke an agreement with the Jews. He went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig and desecrated it. That's why he's the, the desolation that causes desecration. He, it was sacrilege. And that's what the Antichrist is going to do in the middle. He's going to sacrifice a pig or something there, but he's going to desecrate the place in the most insulting way possible, and then, and then mass persecution is going to take place at that point. So there has to be a temple of some kind may not be as elaborate as we're thinking, but I've wondered if the seven-year agreement doesn't have to do with the rebuilding of a temple. If they, if they were given permission to rebuild a temple and that would be the thing that would lead to peace, everyone would celebrate and they'd begin building and they've been collecting material for years. So, and training high priests and everything else. They're even breeding the red heifers that are required to sacrifice for the high priest. So... Okay, I guess that was it. You can catch me offline. Why don't we close in prayer? Uh, Father, again, as we th think of these things, we just ask your grace to help us navigate it and understand what you have for us. Give us just greater and greater clarity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, let me mention just one thought about the rapture. We hope for a pre-trib rapture. So that's what I'm hoping for. We're all hoping for that. We, we have to be aware, though, that we might need to prepare for a pre-wrath one. So believe the one, but keep an eye on the other one here.